Running Wild with Christine, sex, success, and other slippery rabbit holes. Welcome to episode 30 with Morton Rand Hendrickson. 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 I fixed myself. <laughs> Hi, Morton. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am great. I'm very excited to talk today about a topic that is a little further outside of my comfort zone than usual. But, um, <laughs> but we'll make do. Um, do you want to give a background to the listeners as to who you are and what you do? Uh, I am, I guess you would call me an educator at this point. Um, I work for LinkedIn Learning, which mm-hmm. is uh, online video training. Uh, I train people on web design and design thinking in general and anything that has to do with interaction design. Um, we used to be lynda.com, so yeah. a lot of people are familiar with lynda.com. Yeah. LinkedIn Learning is the same thing. We were acquired by LinkedIn, so now we're LinkedIn Learning. Um, and I also work at uh, as an instructor, in sessional sessional instructor at the Emily Carr uh, University of Art and Design, which is where we are right now. Yes. So I teach interaction design. Here. Great. And you are from Norway originally. Yeah. Funny fact: I know how to say I don't speak Norwegian in Norwegian. Let's hear it. Wow, that's impressive. See? Yeah. <laughs> I will credit Lotta, my best friend from high school, to all my very weird <laughs> Norwegian knowledge. Includes grocery lists and things like that. Nice. Um, so why did you decide to come to Canada? Uh, that was... That's an interesting thing. Like, I was very heavily involved in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was in university, I kind of fell into it... it, it it's, I was started university and then I was living in a student village, yeah. um, which is something that the university in Oslo has. There are the two big student villages, nice. basically like huge areas where there's... Which is of, not common in Europe at all. Like it's common here with campuses, but in yeah, Europe, you don't really a, have that. It, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> so I lived in a student village and there were some things about the student village I didn't like. And then the student parliament yeah. had a meeting <laughs> at my student village and I came and I'm like, here's my list of demands. <laughs> and then it's one of those things where <laughs> you, you go to a political meeting and you voice an opinion and then all the parties pounce on you and be like, hey, listen, <laughs> let's ask you a ton of questions to figure out where you position yourself. Yeah. And at first, the very conservative branches were like, hey, we want to talk to you. And then they very quickly realized, okay, maybe you not know, you. <laughs> you don't fit, but you should go talk to those people over there yeah. the crazy radical socialist nutcases <laughs> and then um, I got dragged into student politics and realized that this was like where I should be yeah because there were a lot of things that were happening and I had you know it just fit my brain very well so I got heavily involved in student politics I ended up sitting on the on the uh, student no the university board because this is weird, but in Norway, any state-owned institution yeah. constitutionally has to have user representation. Yeah. Meaning, at every university the state owned, there has to be student representatives in the governing, the governing body of the university yeah. itself. Yeah. Right. So it's like the composition of the governing body there was the principal and the vice principal and some academic staff and some technical staff and some external representatives yeah. and two students. So I sat there for a year and yeah. made decisions about the university and 32,000 students and everything. Amazing. And, uh, 
when I was done with that, the political party I was affiliated with, the Labour Party, mm-hmm. they were like, yeah, you know, you should get more involved in the Labour Party and we should, you know, there, there are tracks you can follow yeah. in places. <laughs> and all my friends, 100% of them at the time were involved in that. Yeah. I realized if I continue down this track, I end up being a politician. And I realized that this would not be healthy for me as a person yeah. <laughs> mentally because I was becoming really frustrated. I'm too, I have very strong opinions about things. Yeah. And they don't, you know, I get frustrated when. And you when couldn't distance yourself I, from them? I make, I'll present a case to you and then you'll like discard it for some ridiculous reason that is all about. And that will crush you. Political ideology <laughs> yeah. and not about the real world. <laughs> So I'm like, this is going to destroy me. I need to remove myself from the situation. <laughs> and then various things happened in my life that made it meaningful to go to Vancouver. So nice. I went to Vancouver. Cool. As a, what my father called a life experiment. Oh, yeah. I have the same. 16 years later, I'm still here. So I guess the life experiment worked out. I think I'm still experimenting. I did eight years here, went back to Europe for two and came back. So I think we're, you know, (laughs) there's a leeway here. (laughs) Um, Okay, so you go from that and then you end up in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. How do you go into design? Uh... (laughs) Looking back. Yeah, my background is in philosophy. Mm -hmm. That's what I studied at. University, and I always wanted to be a philosopher, but you know, there's so what many stops jobs. us from saying we are philosophers. There's so many jobs available for philosophers, yeah. You know, so you can many, be a truck <laughs> driver or work at Starbucks, <laughs> or you know, literally have any other job than being a philosopher. Uh, all these opportunities are there. I mean, you and I was, I, I when I moved here, yeah, I couldn't work, right? Yeah. Because I'm I was just here visiting for a very long time. <laughs> Life experiment. <laughs> so I took a volunteer job at a TV station mm-hmm. uh, and worked there. And I've always had like a design mind. mind. I've, I've worked with design before and I was a photographer for a while and I built websites and everything. And it just slowly became a thing where I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't, I have all this time. So I yeah. was doing graphics for the TV channel and then I started building websites and then I was like, yeah, this is actually a thing I can do. So I built a lot of websites for nonprofits and whatever. And then I eventually got a permanent residence card and then I made a business where I built websites. I worked <laughs> in TV and made websites on the side and then the website thing just ate up all my yeah. time. Which um, is a good problem. Yeah. And I mean, that's how most people my age or older yeah. who were in the web came about working on the web. It's like you kind of fell into it. It was something you understood. You follow the technology as it evolved and then mm-hmm. end up here. And is that how you got into the learning part, like the Linda platforms and stuff like that? So I, I had, uh, I was working on a project. This is a long time ago. I don't remember when, but I was <laughs> working on a project and I was invited to this event downtown. It was yeah. a Microsoft event, just randomly. They invited people. One of those schmoozing things. And then at the event, there was... Um, they were promoting this new software that wasn't released yet. And they were giving out these business cards that had a access code on them. So you could get the alpha version Mm -hmm. and use it. And I'm like, okay, I'll make an alpha. I'll take the alpha version. I'll actually build my current project using this for my client and I'll document everything. So I booted up a blog Mm -hmm. with WordPress 
And I'm like, I can do this. So this is my first blog. And it's funny because if you go to my website right now, if you go to morton.com, yeah. you like follow all the way back to the very beginning, the first post, you'll see these posts that I'm talking about. That's so, so funny. I basically took this unfinished software and then I would, every day I would work with it and then I would document all the things that weren't the, working yeah. or the things that were working in this blog. And then a bunch of people from Microsoft were reading it and they would comments if you go into the comments yeah. you'll see like there are all these conversations about like what the hell is happening here why is this not working <laughs> um and then eventually they called me and they were like hey can you just come down to redmond and actually sit in front of us and work with us because <laughs> you're running into some weird ass issues that we don't understand and mm -hmm. we need to see what you're doing yeah uh, so i drove to redmond um <laughs> fun and sat there for a whole day with like a team of people just so you drove hanging. for a day to sit there for a day yeah well <laughs> takes a couple hours to drive down in the morning and then i hung out with them for a whole day and they basically hovered over my shoulder the entire time just watching me do stuff and it's just like what? no pressure why are you doing that why would you click on that button but there's another button for that you're like why wouldn't i <laughs> and then i became one of the beta testers mm -hmm. um and then someone had called microsoft and asked hey we need someone to write a book about this stuff and then they sent Microsoft was like, hey, you should talk to that guy who's writing a blog about it already. So I got a book deal out of it. Amazing. And then I wrote a book, and then that book became four books. And then yeah. uh, some recruiter from Linda was like, hey, we want to have a course about this. But then by the time they contacted me, I already knew that the software would die. Yeah. Like I, I'd been told, you know, you should probably not invest a lot of time in new books about this. Mm -hmm. So I said, no, we're not making a course about this, but we can do something else. And then they randomly gave me WordPress because I already knew it. And then we did a WordPress course that just became the most watched course on Linda immediately. Like yeah. we released it and immediately went to the top and then it just that, so it was all very dynamic. Yeah. There was no planning involved. It just, I fell into it. But that's awesome. That's how life works now. Yeah, it's, it's very. Um, I don't think we can plan anymore. This is like a big shift I, that I can see. Yeah, like, I think part of this is that thing we all talk about all the time, which is privilege. Yeah, that, yeah, you know, absolutely. I am the ideal <laughs> candidate for this, like the <laughs> white North, Northern European male, yeah. with strong English skills and yeah. an academic education who knows how to communicate with people and therefore opportunities fall into my lap all the time. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and that's also like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and mm -hmm. I spend a lot of my time now trying to use that privilege to forward other people like I internally at uh, LinkedIn Learning I'm I push for like more inclusion more um, underrepresented groups as instructors uh, skewing our content more towards people who are not don't look like me and yeah. act like me and everything and you know our entire team is very focused on that but I can like, in yeah, my job you can see how <laughs> in my job I have Another privilege, which is I work for a company that actually cares about this stuff. Yeah. Right? And who actively works to promote it. So it's, yeah. it's this thing where, yeah. It, yeah, it's going in the, in the right direction yeah. in the first place. Yeah. I could totally see that. And then, so recently, you've been having talks and focusing a lot about the implications of web design and sort of the, the reasoning behind the ethics. Yeah, or lack thereof. Or lack thereof within the field. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that happens when you're tying the philosophy back yeah, into it. <laughs> your life is actually just this huge loop where yeah. you go somewhere and you abandon it for a very long time, and then it just naturally comes back, and then you realize that that's what you've been doing the whole all time. along. Yeah. So people kept people often ask me why, you know, they ask me things like, 
why are you a designer or why are you such a good designer? Mm -hmm. I'm doing Quote, air unquote. quotes. <laughs> <laughs> but like, people ask you that all the time. Like, yeah. How do you come up with this designer or that designer? Why do you do this over that? Or how do you understand this code and not whatever? And I could never really explain it. And then it wasn't until a couple of years ago I realized it's actually because of my philosophy education. Mm -hmm. Because when you learn philosophy, at least that university I went to, um, there was a very heavy focus on philosophy of language yeah. and philosophy of science and logic. And I mean, logic, programming is logic. So if you know modal logic, you'll be able to read software, even if you don't even understand the the this yeah. particular language so i can sometimes debug software or i don't know the language because i can see where the log structure what the logic yeah. is and what's going wrong right um but then for design design is communication mm -hmm. and communication in a very big regard is the philosophy of language it doesn't like because language isn't just spoken language or written language language is actually any kind of any situation where I have an idea and I try in some way to plant that idea in your head, ideally yeah. so that it matches mine. Yeah. Right? That's what we're trying to do. And that's what philosophers have been trying to figure out since the beginning of time is how does that actually happen? How does that transaction happen? Is it actually happening? And are we, we having, <laughs> this, I do this exercise with a lot of my students um, and uh, like any student of mine will be like, yes, I know what this is. So I go into the classroom and I say, I want everyone to draw a tree. And I just don't give them any more instruction than that. I just say, draw a tree. And I give them like five minutes. And then you'll have this, depending on where you are in the world, Yeah. the trees vary. Um, so some will draw the cauliflower, yeah. no, the, the broccoli, yeah. right? the stem with a big blob yeah. on top. That's what I would draw. Um, if you go to Northern Europe, people will generally draw some sort of triangle with a stick like on the a bottom, pine, yeah. a pine tree. Um, but then interestingly in every group there's always one or two people who draw some dead tree like a tree with just branches oh. and no leaves or just one or two leaves and it's very specifically one or two people in every single That's group crazy. Um, and what you realize is that language and how we speak is very anchored into where we are the community around us who we are as people where we grew up and everything right so to me, when people say tree, I see trees in my head mm -hmm. and I have concepts of what a tree is. And those trees, because I'm from Northern Europe, are not the same as the trees people see here yeah. in Vancouver if they grew up here in Vancouver. Yeah. But then in Vancouver, because we have such a wide variety of cultures that don't come together and a very high number of first or second generation immigrants yeah. from all over the world, this concept as something as simple as tree yeah. is very differently understood by different people. Yeah. And only, only like if so, if you want to communicate a, something about a tree to someone, it's not enough to say tree. You need yeah. to add another level. What of, kind of tree? <laughs> either by referencing a specific tree, by yeah. pointing at it or walking over to it or showing a picture or putting more descriptive elements to it. Yeah. That's design. Yeah. Right. When you are saying, I'm trying to communicate this concept or idea to another person and I need to make sure that I communicate enough information for my idea to match the one that mm -hmm. appears in your head. That's what designers do. Yeah. That's also what philosophers try to figure out. Yeah. How that happens. So uh, I have been doing philosophy the entire time. <laughs> I just didn't realize it. Well, I kind of did because the website I originally built, this website that was for uh, the testing expression yeah. web the name of the website and the domain i bought was design is philosophy oh my gosh dot com 
I don't know if I still own that domain. I probably do. <laughs> and it's redirecting to Morton.com, yeah, which is my current website. Probably. But you should do something from it. I have t-shirts <laughs> that say that that I printed back then to get people to go to my website. Um, so uh, it's always been there. Yeah. And now that like over the past four years, I've gotten really heavily focused on this the ethics of design and what is happening with technology and design mm-hmm. um, and it's just a natural I mean it, a natural thing that just came about yeah and I think it's it's like a bit of a zeitgeist thing as well maybe not as in much in depth in terms of design and ethics but you know the repercussions of oh, our usage so. of, of technology with you know our values our life our reality yeah it's very much a current thing. I mean, if you go to any tech conference or design conference now, there's at least one talk about ethics. It at least has the word ethics in the talk. Or And everyone and their dog is writing a book about ethics or <laughs> doing a video about ethics or doing something. So it's become a really hot topic. And it's weird because two years ago, yeah, two or three years ago, probably two years ago, I started pitching tech conferences a talk about ethics. Yeah. And Such a... they would just be like, no, <laughs> what the hell is this? I'm not. So sexy topic, no. ethics. <laughs> this sounds super boring. We're not doing this. This is not an academic conference. And then now, yeah. all those conferences that turned me down have keynotes about ethics. Yeah. Um, and I'm sitting there going, hey, <laughs> what? what the hell? <laughs> Why aren't you calling me? Like, you know, because I was talking about this and now they're like, well, you know, how do we know that like, you're the best to talk about yeah. this? And you just jumped on the bandwagon now. I'm like, oh, you should go look at it. Technically. You know, but there are no sour grapes here. It's more like, it's interesting to see how the, te- the tech and design field yeah. has very quickly realized, or, or all of a sudden realized that this is actually a huge problem. And then are grappling with this notion of, we have an entire industry built without thinking about this. And we've built all the structures of our industry around not having ethics. Yeah. And how do we kind of shoehorn ethics into it without tearing the whole house down in the process? Yeah. And <laughs> when, so when you start talking about it, it becomes a really challenging conversation because on the one hand, it's very easy to pull out examples of how things are not working. Yeah. Right? If you go on the internet right now and you just search ethics, yeah. you'll find like 100,000 articles about how technology is destroying everything. But I think that's in general with ethics, though. Like, yeah. It well, doesn't necessarily apply to, to tech. If you like, did that two years ago, you'd find a lot of articles about like medical ethics or legal yeah. ethics or anything like that. But now, yeah. if you just search ethics, you find an endless barrage of articles about how something in tech has mm-hmm. gone wrong. Or someone has done something wrong and therefore we need ethics or this is an ethical problem, right? Yeah. And it kind of started with the um, self-driving cars three yeah. or yeah, four yeah, years yeah, ago yeah. Where, where someone at MIT was writing about this uh, trolley problem issue where mm-hmm. self-driving cars have to be programmed to kill someone. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because as a philosopher, I was like, whoa, this is the first time we actually have a real practical case in yeah. the trolley problem. Like, whereas before, like the trolley problem is this classic philosophical conundrum of there is a train tracks underneath you you're on a bridge there are train tracks (laughs) and then the train is going forward and there are five people on the tracks and if the train goes where it's going now it'll hit the five people and kill them however there is a switch and on the other track there's one person yeah so if you do nothing five people die yeah if you intervene in some way 
So by pulling the yeah. switch, then the train goes in the other direction and kills the other person. What do you do? Yeah. Do you pull the switch and kill the person who is not actually going to die and make the choice to kill a person or do you do nothing and then five people are killed right yeah and then the so when, what if that person's a kid blah, 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 blah. so when you do this test yeah you find that a certain percentage of people a, a majority of people will actually pull the switch or mm -hmm. say they will uh, it's hard yes. to do in real yeah, life yeah, right yeah, yeah. but people will say they will pull the switch that logically and then if you change yeah. the examples so this is very unpolitically correct mm -hmm. called the fat man problem yeah. Uh, so the idea is, you're instead of being down on the tracks, you're on a bridge. Yeah. And then there's a fat man or a man with a large briefcase mm -hmm. or suitcase or whatever. Like so, for some something. reason, there's a large human being or a human being with something large attached to mm -hmm. them next to you. If you and the train, there's only one track. The track is going right at five people. Yeah. If you throw the person off the bridge. It'll stop the train. That'll stop the train, <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, the people who said, I'll totally pull the switch, are like, there's no way in hell I'm pushing this random person off the bridge. And then the question is, why, why? is that? Like, yeah. why is it that it's okay to pull the switch and kill a person, but it's not okay to pull to them push off someone the off the bridge? And there are many, many theories yeah. about why that is. It has to do with like proximity, that you physically have to do it. But then you can be like, what if you had a very long stick? Yeah. <laughs> but it says something about the human psyche and yeah. how moral judgments are made, right? Yeah. So self-driving cars turn out to be an actual real life situation Train. like this, where you have a car driving down the street and let's say a child runs into yeah, the street yeah. in front of the car. And then if the, the car then has in one scenario, it's like if the car veers from the child, it has to run into another car and kill people, but yeah. they're older, right? In another example, you can say there are a bunch of bicyclists on the road, so you have to choose between the bicyclist or a child. Or you are yeah. going to run into the bicyclist, but if you veer off, you'll hit a child or, or an a old car, person. Or and then you can a, say, yeah. like, is a child person, is a child worth more than an old person? Yeah, a value of life. Or is it a situation where the car has to choose between hitting someone or running into a wall and killing the passengers, yeah. right? The interesting part about the self-driving car is that that has to be programmed ahead of time. So someone, a software engineer, has to make a decision. Has to decide, yeah. Where's the threshold when the passenger and the driver is killed? Yeah. Right? And what's going to happen, and that kind of has happened already, but what will happen is at some point, a self-driving car will make a decision that kills someone. Either mm -hmm. someone outside the car or someone inside the car. And who? Whoever gets killed, there will be a lawsuit. Right? Whoever gets killed or their family or someone will sue the car manufacturer for this because in either situation, yeah. a choice was made. Whatever outcome that decision has in law courts will then set a precedence for yeah. the trolley problem permanently for everything. Right? So then it becomes cool. a decision. So we've then quantified yeah. a philosophical um, impossible situation into an actual this is right and this is wrong. Yeah. Um, so that's when ethics suddenly became a thing the tech industry was talking about. Where it's like, whoa, this is a huge problem. And then you realize, actually, this problem appears all over the place. We just have been pretending <laughs> just it doesn't. It. Yeah. Right? Um, and then people start saying, oh, this ethics is an issue. We need to solve it. And then they go, how do we solve it? Well, we have to figure out what ethics is. And then we have to document all the problems. And then we have to come up with a way of solving it. Or come up with an ethics for design and mm -hmm. for technology. And like with most things in the tech industry, there has a tendency of treating every new problem that arises as a new problem that we are the first to discover. <laughs> so instead of, instead of saying, hey, there's like 
you know, eight, nine, ten thousand years of his history of moral philosophy yep. that exists. That <laughs> we're like, let's come up with something new, right? <laughs> we'll solve this with an app or something. And a lot of the conversation early on was very much around like, how do we come up with a better ethics for this stuff, right? And what, what I'm trying to do and what a lot of people are trying to do now is bring it back to, you know, we already have well-established ethics in every other industry. Yeah. I mean, journalism has ethics. The yep. medical industry has ethics. There's a reason why you can't do like human testing of drugs without having, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a reason why we don't have human clones. And it's yeah. not because it can't be done. It's actually completely possible to do it. Yeah. Any major hospital can clone humans. Yeah. No one will because of medical ethics, right? Yeah. Um, engineering has that. We're in a building right now that is not falling down yeah. because of engineering ethics. So uh, the tech in, and design industry, and maybe in particular the design industry, has to has to somehow change itself to adopt not just a code of ethics, but an actual ethics at its core. Um, yeah. And so that's what I'm working on now is trying to figure out what that looks like and how that would work for us because it's it's very easy to go in and pass moral judgments on decisions after the fact yeah it's very hard to create a system in which you make ethics part of the decision making process um, especially when the materials you work with in themselves have ethical problems so like if you're a yeah if you're a you work in construction right? so you build buildings then you have materials like steel and mm -hmm. lumber and concrete and all this stuff and all these things have ethical implications like if you have lumber then you have to cut trees down yeah, and yeah, yeah. that has an impact on and then how you manage the forest to not deprive us of oxygen. And what about the animals who live in the forest? And are you gonna clear cut? Are you gonna like, and then the forest fire situation, like there's, it gets really complex. And you have yeah. to consider all these things about the materials. And that industry or the industry that provides that, they have to think about this. And in some cases they make the right decision, and in some cases they make the wrong decisions. But these conversations happen, are having, right? yeah. In the tech industry, Everything we work with has the same type of ethical problems, right? So when like the, the hot topics are AI and machine learning right mm -hmm. now. So like machine learning has obvious ethical issues. Mm -hmm. AI has obvi obvious ethical issues. But so do all the other things we do. Like UX yeah. has ethical issues. Um, just design principles in general have ethical issues. There's a, there's a very well, there's a, a lot of people are sharing this article that was published by the Harvard Business Review mm -hmm. last week, I believe which talks about how design thinking as a thing as a is actually problematic. That it, that it uh, fosters um, exclusionary behavior and, yeah. and paints a picture of this very specific world that we want to create, which is very ethnocentric towards white, middle-aged, rich men. Yeah. Because that's where it came from. Yeah. And, so, and that's like, that even design the thinking solution, is the core yeah. of everything we do in yeah. design. That is the absolute baseline we work off, right? But that's equating it to language. Yeah. I think this is why it's very interesting right now to talk about it um, from that sort of like philosophical stream, stream of thought perspective. It's as if we're given this like opportunity to actually do what we've been trying to do in terms of like postmodern critique or post-structural cr mm -hmm. critique with language of being like, okay, well, language is problematic because we now function on binaries and we can't do away with the, uh, for, like we can't break them apart because the language makes us say things in binary ways. Mm -hmm. Like we have, yes, spectrum exists, even the word spectrum exists, but you 
still function in, in is or isn't. There's yeah. no might be, like, in the structure. And so that's what we can potentially do with if, if you change the design thinking. Yeah. Because you can sort of, quote, unquote, still do that. You, you, language, mm, it's going to be a hard task, you know? <laughs> well, my son is trying very hard. <laughs> I saw your Twitter post about uh, that. It's very amusing. My son has... <laughs> I have a two-year-old. He is uh, has opinions about language and has decided that certain words just are not good enough. So he can say them just fine. He just chooses not, not to, to use. So he has re- renamed a bunch of things. I mean, why not? And it's, it's I support a, him. You know, I don't have a lot of exposure to a lot of small children, so I don't know if this is normal, but it's a very entertaining thing for us. And also to see how this two-year-old Vehement. influences other people to adopt this made-up language. <laughs> Not out of like it's and it's you know clearly not intentional on his part, but it's interesting to see how people have this tendency of adopting other people's language, yeah. even when the language is rubbish that a two-year-old <laughs> came up with. So like the example is he he calls water veo veo. Okay. That's water, and it's, <laughs> he can say water because he says watermelon. Yeah. So it's not like he's physically <laughs> capable of saying it, but water is veo veo. That's it. Right? And then he'll, like, make songs where he goes, like, when he's drinking water, he'll be like, veo, 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 right? It's, yeah. it's a thing. And then people who are exposed to him for a long time, they'll catch themselves being like, do you want veo, veo, wait, water? <laughs> but that's how language works, yeah, right? That's actually how language works. Yeah. Like, enough people just decide. Decide, yeah. This is what it means. This word means that thing. And yeah. it's a representative of this physical thing or phenomenon or whatever. Yeah. And we use it. And I think we're more conscious of it when you speak more than one. Like, well, yeah. we obviously speak Norwegian and English, but like I, and maybe more languages I didn't ask you, but like I have five in my head at all times. Mm-hmm. And so I remember distinctly like at UBC in, in like philosophy classes or in, or in, you know, philosophy of power and like all of these structural big things, people would be like, well, you know, when you use this word and I'm like, mm, that's very English centric because yeah. in three of the other languages, like that isn't actually the connotation, and they like, and this was written by Descartes, so it's in French. So actually, yeah, the like, why are somewhere. you? <laughs> and also, how are you? How did everyone decide that this is what Descartes meant when he used a word that doesn't mean that? Like, excuse yeah. me, what? <laughs> so, and what you probably have the experience of too is this: you actually think in contextually based on language. Yeah. So, so if you're talking to someone who speaks another language you know, your entire way of thinking yeah. is shaped differently. Yeah. And there's this, it's much of culture is tied to the language, mm-hmm. right? So it's a really tricky subject because like you have this, you have all these debates, right? Like in Quebec right now, they have this yeah. debate about like you have to have the, what is it? Like the culture test or some oh. crazy thing like that. Yeah. I would love to see what that's supposed to look like because it sounds insane. I mean, it's but, basically like what we do in Switzerland, like yeah. in general to people. So, so <laughs> one of the things they say is you have to speak the language, yeah. right? And it's interesting because what they're, what they're actually saying is you have to the, or they're acknowledging that the language carries with it a culture yeah. right but they're not communicating it that way no. so therefore it just falls apart but they're yeah. saying like you have to be able to speak french what they mean is you have to understand the cultural context which yeah. is funnily enough not something that can happen by adopting a new language because i as a norwegian who yeah. learned english even though i started learning english in second grade yeah. and even though we watched like american and english tv shows yeah in English since I was a child, 
I am still never going to be able to adopt English speaking culture or Canadian culture. Yeah. No matter how long I live here. And I, like, even though if I live in Canada longer yeah. than I lived in Norway, yeah. I will still always be a bicultural person. Yeah. Because my entire formative years yeah. was in a different culture but even even more complicated like i'm half serbian half croatian originally my oh, yes. mom's serbian my dad's croatian and i was born in switzerland as a first right a generation so and then i immigrated really here yeah. so i still don't identify as swiss even though i have the passport is the mm-hmm. one i travel on but i was raised in a household where you know that's not the education i got like yeah. i did not get the try your best Everything you, is okay. <laughs> and you adopt like you yeah, adopt all these pieces. facets of different cultures, and then you adopt the culture that you're exposed to. Like if you hang out on Twitter a lot, yes, your the whatever the bubble. bubble you're in colors your understanding of the world, and that bubble will be very different, or your understanding will be very different from other bubbles within the same social media network. And when you have cross communication inside these bubbles, you get these fundamental breakdowns of communication yeah. where you see people shouting at each other and you can tell that they're not talking about the same thing. They're just using words that sound like they're in the same, yeah. or their interpretations of the words are so so, so far separate. apart yeah. that there's, there is no actual communication happening. No. It's just people shouting at or each other. Or worse, they're actually communicating the same thing but have been socialized yeah. to disagree with each yeah. other and therefore will find the smallest increments of things that differ from their common goal and get stuck in that. Yeah. And I'm just like... <laughs> or, and then what often happens is um, if you have someone saying something, it can be anything. Let's say ice cream. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you have someone saying like, uh, strawberry ice cream is horrible. Yeah. Just, you know, I don't like strawberry ice cream. Anyone who likes strawberry ice cream sucks. Yeah. You're a stupid person if you like strawberry ice cream, right? Yeah. And then you have another person who's like, well, I think strawberry ice cream is great. And then because of, like, if they're in the same social sphere, they'll be like, oh, cool, we can have a disagreement on this. Maybe I'll buy a new Neapolitan ice cream and then I'll eat All of the, the strawberry. white and brown section <laughs> and the pink section. Yeah. And then we can argue over whether or not that's fair, whatever. <laughs> or we can split, like, yeah. one or the other, like, you know, Middle this ground. is fine. Yeah. But if you have two people who live in different spheres, they will pass moral judgments on the other person based on their interpretation of it. So like if you are living in a world where hating a specific kind of ice cream is a bad thing and says something about you as yeah. a person and that's something you hold high as a like a virtue mm-hmm. and then you see someone say I hate strawberry ice cream as a joke yeah. or just as a flippant remark then you'll pass this moral judgment on that person as in like this is an actual bad person. And if that conversation then happens then you have this f- breakdown where one side or even both sides yeah. pass moral judgments on the other based on their interpretation of it rather than an understanding of what the other person's But I think about. that also comes from the way that we use and the way that we structure the media that we've been given. Yes. So like this is you know tying everything back in. I there is no app for middle ground. There is no app for <laughs> you know like there is no medium that teaches you not to the, be flippant the or the <laughs> you know yeah. it's all about highlights reels and yeah. the best and the worst and the most and the least and, and it's not middle and it's very like middle's like, become a bad thing yeah i think that's more because we tend like nuance okay, so, is hard to <laughs> so these 
uh, when I when I say that there's a missing component of ethics in design and technology, what I'm talking about is not that like it, it can easily sound like you're saying if I say we don't have ethics in design and technology, it can sound like I'm saying everything that's done is unethical. What I mean is no. we don't have a system in place to make. Um, proper ethical evaluations of the decisions we're yeah. making to, to make sure we're making decisions that lead us towards what philosophers refer to as human flourishing. Yeah, the greater um, good. Right? And you can, you know, you can then have another discussion about how do we define human flourishing? Yes, right? yes. But let's just say like we're What does it look like outside that, of the cave? <laughs> yes. What is it that make, how do we make decisions that lead, lead people towards a future they would want to live in? Yeah. Right? And then ignoring all the issues about like different people will describe different futures in this yeah. circumstance. But what's happened is a lot of the technology that we've built has ignored the entire conversation about human flourishing and instead just said we're going to make technology that earn us the most money yeah right and then you get this very interesting thing that we've what led us to this point here is it actually started with blogs everyone made blogs in the early 2000s and then everyone was like hmm, i wonder if i can earn money yeah Right? And I wonder if I can make so much money off advertising on my blog that I don't have to work. And I have a friend who did this and who's now a multimillionaire, like filthy rich, who <laughs> now just blogs about how to make money online and basically tells people his story. <laughs> but what ha- like, I remember this because I was part of it, mm-hmm. where there was a long period of time where we were like, how do we make our blogs? Like, first, we just made blogs. Yeah. And then we were like, you know, I have to pay like whatever it costs to run a blog. Domain, yeah. I want the blog to pay for itself. Yeah. So you put ads up. And then you earn money and you earn more money. And they were like, wait, can I earn a lot of money this way? And then you started going, okay, so to earn money, I have to write content people actually want to read. So then you would start formatting your content to be like the stuff that's high click rate. Yeah. Right. Then the advertising companies were like, wait a second, we can serve your visitors with ads that they're likely to click on to make it better. Yeah. But to do that, we have to track them. Right. And then we're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Because then I get more money. And then businesses like Facebook were like, hey, we can just make an entire social network where all we're doing is tracking people be- people's behavior and then serving them the ads they want. And then they discovered want. to do this, like, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. ads they're likely to click on, yeah, right? Yeah. And then to do that, we then have to make sure that they get exposed to content that makes them click like, more, right? So then you get this, that's where the filter bubbles start. Loop, yeah. Where you say, it's easier to keep people inside a bubble where they get fed either things they always agree with, so just the same opinion all the time, or something they are very, very vehemently against, like something that truly offends them, right? Yeah. So then you get this polarization happening where you will act, the systems actively promote content that is designed you click solely on either for to your love or interaction, to hate. Yeah. right? So it's it, this whole attention economy thing is about that. It's actually just about ads. Yeah. And the crazy thing that's happened now is, for instance, like if we accept the hypothesis that certain elections in the past couple of years, including the election of the president in the United States and the vote over Brexit in mm-hmm. the UK, if we accept the hypothesis that these elections were in some way manipulated by Feedback these loops. systems, right? What actually happened is these were democratic decisions made by humans to benefit 
ad algorithms. They were not actually designed to benefit a specific Humans. party. So they weren't, like the algorithms yeah. do not care if you go Brexit yeah. or no Brexit. Yeah. They do not care who you elect president. The they don't even know. No, like, they, <laughs> They're they, an algorithm. The only thing the algorithm cares about yeah. is how to get more money, more yeah. people engaged. And the crazy thing is, due to the outcomes, like either outcome on either side creates more advertising revenue yeah. because people get more enraged and more polarized which makes right so the what is happening on the internet now is our decisions are being manipulated by an algorithm that doesn't care the outcome yeah it just cares about its own survival yeah and we're actually tearing our this society apart to benefit the algorithm to benefit an algorithm that sells us ads that we don't like or want and that's because <laughs> way back when we started this no one asked the question. No one thought. What is it that I'm, what capability am I trying to give to my end user here? Yeah. Right? And that's where the ethics comes in. So the thing that I'm trying to get people to understand is when we make design decisions, every design decision we make is it's actually... potentially the atomic bomb. <laughs> well, yeah. But what, if you look at just a design decision, when yeah. you want to design something, and when I say design, I mean write an article, mm -hmm. make a blog make a podcast whatever like any decision you make where you put something into the world what you're trying to do is granting the other person in the conversation a capability to do something yeah. either read something or absorb some sort of information Questions or be entertained or buy something or learn yeah. something or whatever but yeah. you're trying to create a capability that another person can use yeah and if we start looking at um what capabilities we are designing for other people and then think about if they use this capability what does that end up create like what does the world end up looking like mm -hmm. then we get a very different conversation from move fast and break things to think carefully about the world you build in this design yeah. so every design decision is quite literally cutting a path mm -hmm. into a future and then we think about what that future looks like and where we want that future to be headed. And then the value of our designs becomes measured based on whether or not people actually want that future we're trying to build. It's the same as medical ethics, same as all the other same ethics. As everything. Yeah. But that's the core of it, is mm -hmm. that we need to reevaluate, think, think differently about our designs from human-centered design to capability-centered design. And we're actually creating capabilities for those human beings. Yeah. And that's the core of an ethical platform for design. Yeah, and that's not even going into sort of the practicality of how you um, enact sort of the ethical question throughout your yeah. design process. That's just like simply posing the question yeah. at the beginning. That's where you start, and then you yeah. can use all these different ethical theories. Like you can use capability approach and virtue ethics and deontology and um, consequentialism and all this stuff to test your decisions against different kinds of theories to, to unravel problems and also discover new solutions and use ethics as a design tool yeah rather than just using it as a risk mediation tool right <laughs> yeah and that way you can actually make better decisions yeah. not just and and also even uncover new opportunities that you previously were not aware of yeah and i think definitely the it's so sad that like the opportunities thing is like the little carrot at the end, you know, because we're so used to having things um, be opportunistic or have some kind yeah. of other like it's it. But but yeah, also potentially discover. <laughs> it's hard. And I mean, we if we take a less gloomy view of all this, right, <laughs> the tech industry as we know it today 
is like 25 years old. Mm -hmm. right? Basically, the entire world that we live in now started in 1993. Mm -hmm. So Tim Berners-Lee created the first web page, and basically everything that happens in the world now is centered around that decision. Yeah. So the creation of the web and the decision to make the web the way it is now is what colors almost everything that's happening in the world. Right? Yeah. In a very real sense. So, but then consider, this is 25 years old. It's not something that's been around for a very long time. It's not Unlike language. every other industry, <laughs> which has been there forever, right? So when we say, oh, you know, all these other industries have ethics. Well, like the Hippocratic, Hippocratic Oath is what, 2,000 years old? Yeah. Right? Yeah. What we need is to actually think of our industry as an industry that's just emerged from its adolescence. Mm -hmm. So now we're mature. Now we need to start acting like adults. And that means reevaluating a lot yeah. of bad decisions and redoing things, right? Actually looking carefully at it. And that's what we're doing. Yeah. The, my hope is that we can do that in a way that learns from other industries mm -hmm. and that we don't try to reinvent something here. Yeah. But that we actually learn from existing yeah. things and take into account things like, like what you're talking about with how like one of the major problems of the web, the way it works now, is that it's a very Anglo-centric world view that is being imposed on the world. And there's an, a complete, uh, like we've chosen to ignore the fact that, that that's even though people speak English, they don't speak the same language. Yeah. Right? That when I say a word in English, it doesn't actually mean in my head the same thing as what someone else from a different culture speaks, right? So like people always call me out for saying things are fine. So yeah. in my language, if you say something's fine, it's it's okay. It's like there's it's a it's a neither great nor it bad. Not, <laughs> it's fine. It is not terrible. It is not awesome. It's somewhere in between, but it's like on the side of awesome. It's yeah. it's fine. It's, it's right? good. But in Canada or America, if you say something's fine, it actually or depending on who you're talking yeah. to, it actually means it's not fine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I can't get away from that because it's a term that is has different understandings. And uh, this, this assumption that we all speak English on the internet, so therefore we're all speaking the same language, is one of the biggest misunderstandings For of how sure. humans work. And I think that, you know, as he, like in real life, I remember distinctly like my first three or four years in Canada, like I spoke good English, but nowhere near as in tune with like mm -hmm. the, the lingo as I am now. And I always, sometimes I tested it. I knew I would say something a little bit offensive or a little bit crossing the line, or a little bit like you know, um, controversial and then see how people react. And then if anything, I could say, oh, sorry, that's like, you know, English is a second language, my yeah. bad. Like, I didn't mean it that I way. And, <laughs> but, but, sorry, sorry, but in real life, you can do that without crossing any major boundaries or starting any like Twitter wars. Yeah. You know, you can, that's what it's for. You sort of like have this human contact where you are building that, that delicate equilibrium of like, us understanding each yeah. other and so language developed in a very different time from where we are now like mm -hmm. language developed in a time where people lived in very very small communities where basically you knew the 20 to 100 people that you would ever meet in your life yeah that was like or you may tr like tr trade with another group of 20 to 100 people but that was your entire community yeah right so the language was very localized and the understanding of what all these words meant and what you were referring to are very localized yeah um over time that changed but with the internet we had the sudden all of a sudden language was global where there was no clear there was no ramp there was no transition mm -mm. period it just went from 
Yeah. You can't, like talking to someone on the other side of the planet is extremely expensive. You can do it, but you have to call them. Mm-hmm. It's very, very expensive. To I can literally have a conversation with anyone on the, in the entire world right now. At any time. And with that came the assumption that, but we all share the same values, principles, virtues, uh, culture, everything. And it's just not true. No, yeah. And you... And what also isn't true is the fact that the fact that we don't makes us incompatible. Yeah. Like there's, there's, those are the two sets of like assumptions that are entirely diagonal, but somehow we run with both. Yeah. That's the only inconsistency that we're comfortable with. It's like, we all share it. And then if we don't share it, we're like, like what? And you then can't at the same think... time, like, because of this connection, we can now, like, I can make a decision here in this room right now that has an influence on someone on the other side of the planet yeah. or someone in another country or whatever that I have no understanding of. Like, they can take what I say and misunderstand it or understand it in their context, yeah. which to me would appear as a misunderstanding. Yeah. And then act on what I just said in their community, in their culture, and therefore I'm enacting a change I never intended yeah. that was facilitated through an assumption that communication across these cultures can work, yeah. which is not accurate, right? And Or doesn't have to be, like, you know? Well, the assumption that it always yeah. works yeah, yeah, is yeah, inaccurate, yeah, yeah. right? So, so a lot of the growing pains that we are seeing now, and I think root back to this idea that we are all like it, it ignores the fact that culture actually matters down to a language level yeah and that we can't have these we can't pretend like we can use the same language without understanding more about the person we're talking to exactly so, like, and I've, it's the same with freaking you know using creating an interface for someone or yeah. like assuming that someone uses or sees the same things in the same way like exactly. and i think for me that's the really interesting part and that's why i like this kind of medium because we're not putting forward anything. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. technically, we're not saying anything that is new or that you should take or that you should, you know? It's just, we're all here to ask more questions. Like, if we all asked more questions, we would be making less statements, yeah. which I think would be better for us. But that's my personal opinion. Yeah, no, that, you know? and, and that's, that's really valid. I think the one thing that I've started doing in the past year, which is something that I hope, like, that I want to, like, if I can give one piece of advice, it has nothing to do with ethics or design or anything. It's just like <laughs> a life, a piece of life advice yeah. um, that I think honestly can make the world a tiny little bit better is if you see something online that someone says and you have an, a gut reaction to respond to it, try to, to take a couple of moments to figure out who the person who's speaking is. Actually, like if you're on Twitter or Facebook or whatever and there's someone you don't know go like you see something they said and you go what yeah then go look at their timeline just look at what else they're saying and try to figure out what is where is this perspective coming from because what often happens especially on twitter is that you'll see a snippet of a much larger conversation yeah and you don't see the context and it's very and it might be part of a other conversation that's happening elsewhere that you're not even aware of and the statement taken on its own can be interpreted in a million different ways and your interpretation of it was very much colored by where you are right now so what ends up happening is you might see something someone says and you might take offense from it or you might be like this is the best thing ever and share it or whatever without considering what is who said it where it came from yeah so what i've started doing is anytime i see something and i have this deep dive i need to (laughs) respond to this i i go like stop go in look at this you know, 
I, am I missing something here? Is, yeah. there, is there some context I'm not seeing that I need to understand to be able to give a good response? And it goes Take like, it as a learning opportunity. And I see that also, even on Instagram, like you'll see like the actual picture that has words or something and then the caption says the opposite, yeah. but you didn't bother to read the caption, did you? Yeah. Like, and I, and I kept myself doing it. I'm like, wait, no. Like, and a lot of, you know, I, I've been in a lot of arguments on social media where, <laughs> where I've had to tell people like, you're arguing with me, but you're not like, you're you're not listening no no no. it's not even that it's like we are not talking about the same thing and i have to say we're not talking about the same thing the reason why you're angry right now or the reason why we're having this argument is because we're not actually talking about the same thing and then i put in a bunch of context and i'm like this is what i'm talking about and then very often the conversation goes from a fight into oh yeah well you know we might disagree but it's no longer like this antagonistic relationship because they realize oh you took the so time. You came, you came from it, from this other thing. And that is something we can agree with. And it's just the end result that we're disagreeing on. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and it's a, it's a hard thing to do because it requires that you don't act on this spontaneous impulse. The entire system is based on you just Doing acting that. immediately. So you have to counteract the system and actively think through what you're trying to say and then do the research, right? Yeah. Um, and, but it... it takes away some of the crassness of the internet and it also forces you to think about things like if i retweet someone i have fifteen thousand followers i know so i'm exposing this someone might say something that they're like comfortable talking to 10 people about but not fifteen thousand people and i potentially expose them to this other audience that is outside the bubble they were in that might respond to that in a very negative way mm-hmm. so it's not it's not just a matter of oh, I like this sentiment, I want to share it. You have to think about what that does to the person who, sh- yeah. who originally said it and whether or not other people will understand what they said or if they'll misunderstand or tr- interpret yeah. it differently. Yeah, and I think that's, that's interesting because it kind of does both. Like I, I can see, um, you know, some, I have some people in my head that I know, I, like I wish they had Twitter because I wish I could pluck their brains because I like the yeah. stuff that they pay attention to. But those people deliberately don't have Twitter for mm-hmm. that reason where she's going to say, I'm thinking of a friend of mine, she's going to say, like, I, have you read this 15-minute long read on yeah. blah, blah, blah? Um, let's talk about it. And she'll actually send it to me as a right. human and be like, please read this long, quote-unquote, <laughs> yeah. read, someone who wrote a 300-page book that breaks my heart. But, you know, like, this long 15-minute read and let's discuss, like, these, you know, and that's where w- w- what it's there for. <laughs> yeah, but there's no money in that for Twitter. No, but this is the whole thing. Like, oh, there's no money in any of, like, the good stuff well, right now. Well, there's, there is money in it. It's just that <laughs> the monetization model that we've adopted as, like, the only Values, monetization model yeah. that exists is broken. Patreon is, like, coming against it a little bit, you yeah. know? But but it's still we need to rethink the whole value proposition of the internet and like what is it that yeah. actually has value and yeah we can't and as long as we keep sticking with this no Clicks. advertising is the only thing and attention is the only value we're not getting anywhere and, and that's that's you know <laughs> super gloomy <laughs> well it's not super gloomy it's more like just, it just i think they, i think we have to be more conscious of how we use these tools and what they do to us yeah and how that's we buy into you know, what we're doing to ourselves ethics, like the virtue ethics component of this is what kind of person do i want to be when i use these tools what is, what do they turn me into yeah am i like i opted out of politics because it turned me into a monster right <laughs> and 
now it's like social media has become like a pretty hate machine. It's a machine you go to to be enraged mm-hmm. and it turns you into an angry person. And then you have to make conscious decisions about how do I, like, do I want to be this angry person? It's very tempting to be the angry person because it gives you this constant um, adrenaline shock, right? Yeah. Like you get very engaged, but is that actually what you want to be? And then if not, how can you... And is that engagement constructive to yeah. your well-being, even if you're not concerned? And with... how can you use these technologies in a way that gets you what you want without you t- it turns you into another person, right? Yeah, yeah. That's where we need to go. Well, thank you so much for these like big questions today. <laughs> um, I am very thankful my brain is missing this kind of exercise. So <laughs> thanks a lot. Um, I'll be putting your website and um, the article in reference if people want to pay more attention to the philosophy of this um, in the description of the episode. Anything you want to conclude with? No. No, that (laughs) was pretty much it. We've said all all the things. (laughs) Um, Thanks so much, you guys, for tuning in for another episode. Have a great weekend, and I look forward to hearing your feedback, your rate, review, subscribes, uh, which is super antithetical to everything we've just said. So, yay. Go ahead and and click. Please like and subscribe. (laughs) Bye now.